You are listening to The Cycling Podcast. Hello and joining you on November the 16th, a day when the newly rechristened DSM Fermenic post-NL made its early bid for the title of biggest team name mouthful of 2024, a competition in which they'll face stiff opposition from VF Group Bardiani CSF Faizane. My name is Daniel Freebo. I'm the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast in which we will sink further into the closed season comfy chair, invite you to do the same and enjoy a long and hopefully engrossing conversation with a gentleman who has a story to tell about the past few months. One that is harrowing, but also ultimately or hopefully inspirational. We'll meet that individual in just a minute, but first I will say that as it is a long conversation or interview that Merit Center stays this week, we're going to dispense with the usual news roundup at the start of the episode. Has been plenty going on with the cyclocross in Dendermonde, the track Champions League in London, the aforementioned arrival of Post NL as a new co-sponsor for what was DSM Fermanick and very sadly and worryingly for a lot of our listeners, the announcement on Wednesday that the GCN Plus service and GCN app are to close down for good in the coming weeks. Now, I'm pretty sure we'll be revisiting that last story in our coming episodes when hopefully a little more light has been shed on what it means. But as I said, today's episode is going to be dedicated to a long conversation, an interview, a story. And it is the story of someone whose voice you last heard on the cycling podcast on the first rest day of the Giro d'Italia in May. At that point in the race, after the best start to a season of his pro career, including two stage wins and an overall victory in the Tour of the Alps, 2020 Giro winner Theo Gagan Hart had his sights on repeating the feat three years later. He had sat fourth on general classification after the stage nine time trial and he would soon move up to third after pink jersey wearer at Remco Avenepoel's shot withdrawal after a positive Covid test. The new race leader was now Garant Thomas and Gagan Hart's deficit from his Ineos teammate was just five seconds. When we spoke to Teo hours later, he was both optimistic about the rest of the race and also philosophical about the fickle nature of his sport as exemplified by what had befallen Evanapol, but also by Teo's own fortunes over the previous couple of years. Any athlete needs to, you know, to have uh, validation away from their sport because there's so many uncontrollables within sport and especially cycling more than any we were just talking about it at lunch actually about you know the dangers that we face on a on a daily basis and the only sport that we could really draw comparison to was something like the Isle of Man TT on on motorbikes where you know the 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 rate at which the the guys don't even come home is is pretty frightening um so I think when you're I've always believed that to make it as a site, you have to be really used to things not going your way, even if that's when you were 15, 16 years old that you punctured in a race or, mm. yeah, of course, crashes, but, but also bad days and, and all the rest of it. And I think that in order to then be happy within this sport, you have to be able to find, you know, an ability to to remove yourself from from that and and to continue to be a normal functioning person otherwise i don't personally i don't really see how that's sustainable i think if you can't 
uh, and be happy irregardless of, of how it's gone then uh, it's going to be hard to enjoy the sport because many times it is out of your hand um, and that's uh, the nature of the, the beast really a lot of Ineos riders down there and on the right hand side there down and Gagenhart. good it's Gagenhart alas Gagenhart's words proved bitterly prophetic within 48 hours he had crashed out of the Giro collateral damage in the UAE rider Alessandro Covi's skid and fall on the sodden Colle di Boazi descent, 68 kilometers from the end of stage 11. The upper part of his left femur had been shattered into six pieces and Gegenhardt would need an operation quickly to pin and bolt the bones back together. He would spend another two weeks in hospital, enough to watch Primoz Roglic snatch Thomas's pink jersey on the penultimate day of the Giro. And thereafter began Gegenhardt's long odyssey back towards fitness. Now in November, he's back on the bike and looking forward to a new season and indeed new start, having changed teams from Ineos to Little Trek for the first time in his World Tour career. But after a quick word from Lionel, we'll pick up from where we left off in May on that first rest day of the Giro before disaster struck. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by the Hammerhead Carew 2, the most advanced GPS cycling computer available today. I'm Lionel Burney, and if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll know that I'm the proud owner of a Carew 2, and I really love using it. And if you'd like one as well, you can get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of every Hammerhead Carew 2 at hammerhead.io. You just need the promo code CYCLE at checkout. Now, the unit itself looks really great when it's sat there in the middle of your handlebars. The screen is fantastic. It's full color. It displays a lot of information at a glance, which is important when you're riding out on the road. The touch screen is intuitive and it works really well even in the rain. And because the finish of the screen is slightly matte, the display is really easy to read, even in very bright sunshine. But it's all about the data that the Carew 2 can give you when you're out riding. And it's like having a road book sat there in the middle of your handlebars. There's a lot of information to take in. And I think the thing that elevates the Carew 2 is the climber feature. I think as cyclists, we divide into two camps, really. Those who love the climbs and those who dread them or at least endure them. And I'm certainly in the latter category there. But I think the climber feature helps both types of cyclists or all types of cyclists because it gives you information to help you pace your ride when you get to those all important climbs. First of all, it counts down the distance to the climb. And then when you're on the climb itself, you can see the gradient changes in real time. So you always know whether you've got the toughest bit still to come or whether you're over the worst. Then when you're over the top, what I like to do is follow the yellow line and take in that information to help guide me down the descent. So I know from looking at the screen whether there's a, a, a tight bend coming up and I can judge my descending accordingly. So there's a lot to love about the unit itself. And if you listen to our series where we cycled around Scotland last year, Simon Gill and I, you'll know that we plotted all of our routes using the Hammerhead dashboard, which is really easy to use as well. Or if you prefer, you can import routes from Strava or Komoot and they will upload wirelessly to your Carew 2 unit before you set off out of the door. So if you'd like to give the Carew 2 a try, why not order one today? You'll get the free heart rate monitor as well. Go to hammerhead.io, add both of the items to your cart, 
and use the promo code CYCLE. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Once you've decided where to ride, it's time to fuel for your ride. And Science in Sport, who've been supporting us since 2016, have absolutely everything you need to fuel your ride before, during, and then to recover afterwards. I've sung the praises of the beta fuel before. I think when we get to the winter months, as we are here in the UK, we maybe tend to underplay the importance of good nutrition but actually it's much more important even though you're not feeling perhaps as thirsty as you might in the summer months keeping well fueled up especially with carbohydrates is really important when you're out in chilly conditions Uh, scienceinsport.com is the place to go to get everything you need for your ride before during or after and i've said it before but the beta fuel is the thing for me Science in Sport, of course, supply Ineos Grenadiers and have been supplying Teo Gegenhart for a number of years. So without further ado, it's back to Daniel and Teo Gegenhart. Well, Teo, I thought that we would begin where we left off and where we left off. And by that, I mean the last time we had you on the podcast for a long, longish chat. And that was at the Giro d'Italia first rest day two days before a bit of a fateful day for you but but before we do that before we go there just tell us where you are and what you're doing at this moment in time in the second third week of november oh, that's interesting because i have no recollection of that conversation i don't ah perhaps with lionel we'll get to i that think i minute. do remember it now uh yes. it feels like an awful long time ago it was an awful long time ago um I'm currently actually just come down from Andorra for a few days in the Priorat region with my brother uh, and a friend. Uh, world famous region uh, close to Tarragona uh, for wine growing. What wine growing? That's not the word. Wine producing, and also for rock climbing. Uh, more importantly, uh, to why we're here. So. Yeah, my my brother's a very uh, passionate rock climber um, alongside his day job. And yeah, we did this uh, last year, um, came here because the ride in here is really amazing. So yeah, nice to spend some time together. And um, yeah, I've just had a really good day on the bike. Um, I was just telling you before we started the recording that I pressed the lap button uh, on my bicycle computer for the first time in a very very long time so yeah little wins uh, we'll take them a break a breakthrough of sorts we'll get to that in a minute um tell you the rock climbing do you get involved in that i know you have a very broad interest a broad range of interests across a lot of um sort of adventure sports outdoor pursuits uh, i don't suppose your insurance policies allow you to get too involved with the rock climbing no no involvement um i've actually got personal history of knowing quite how um uh, spicy rock climbing can get. I used to climb a lot when I was uh, younger. Um, our dad was a little bit involved in the creation of the Castle Climbing Centre in, in North London, uh, very close to where I grew up. So he had a free lifetime membership of that back in the day. Um, so we would go there with him pretty much every Thursday. And I, my first major injury of sorts was uh, snapping my arm cleanly uh when i was about seven or eight years old there on the the small bouldering overhang at the castle so um 
Yeah, I haven't rock climbed in a long time. It's something that I was actually kind of up on uh, the um, the side where where they climb in Sirana here um, with with them two days ago, and I was thinking this is one of the things that I really look forward to doing um, after my career. But right now, there's uh, zero rock climbing going on. Yeah, I can imagine you as a sort of budding Alex Honnold. Um, I'm sure you've seen. I'm sure you've seen free solo. <laughs> there's there's a lot of uh, I, upper body work needed before that's going to happen. Yeah, I guess so. That will have to wait. Um, Teo, I said we'd go back. We'd pick up the story with that conversation in May at the Giro d'Italia. We'll pick it up on a light-hearted note um, because we did talk that day about your search, your quest for a Fossombrone jersey. <laughs> from a few years previous well to the Giro's arrival in Fossombrone earlier this year and it was a curious jersey where there was a, a red circle which of course is your kind of personal symbol and there was a, there was a quite a f- cool story behind it about a, a Belgian fashion magnet who had bought the club some years earlier you didn't well you hadn't managed to get hold of that jersey at the time of the conversation however you were pictured a few days later unfortunately in a hospital bed which we'll get onto in a minute with the jersey how did that come about uh yeah i mean you know we often speak about the um negative sides let's say of of social media but that's you know a nice highlight of one of the more positive sides that um a a young guy in Fossombrone messaged me and we agreed to um, to trade some uh, Ineos Grenadiers uh, jersey for uh, this yeah pretty incredible second-hand Fossombrone uh, long-sleeve shirt. So that arrived in uh, Villas Cassi Hospital, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 days after we spoke or something. And that was a nice little um, moment for my mum and I to uh, to laugh about considering what had gone on in in the meantime well exactly and just thinking about that conversation we had um i i feel i felt almost guilty listening back to it because it finished on a sort of prophetic note um you with you sort of talking about the the fickle nature of your existence as a professional cyclist and you talked about the setbacks you had in the previous couple of years not finding your level not feeling 100 percent um, but meanwhile, there'd been some of the happiest times of your life. Uh, you'd met an, uh, an amazing partner. And and you said that you needed, as a professional cyclist, you needed to find validation away from the sport because of the dangers you faced on a daily basis and that you'd been aware of that as a cyclist, um, that things were not always going to go your way, even going way back to when you were 15, 16, that had always been part and parcel, unfortunately, of your life as a cyclist. And, well, two days later... Um, unfortunately, when you were third in general classification, you crashed out of the Giro d'Italia on stage 11. Now, I tell you, you've already spoken uh, at length about this in a great interview you did with the Times a couple of weeks ago. But um, if we could cover a bit of that ground again, I just wanted to ask you, well, simply, first of all, to take us back to that day, stage 11. And it was a rainy day. We knew it was going to be a, a gnarly day. Um, did you have any particular concerns about the conditions that day? Can you remember your frame of mind, state of mind going into that stage? Yeah, I mean, I think I should probably also before that just apologise to anyone if they ever sense any kind of hesitation in 
my voice because there's something weird which I experienced in the Times interview that you alluded to about speaking about things that no one knows about. Um, there's something quite quite strange to that, um, which has been a conscious decision to kind of just go about my my um, work, as it were, in, in the last months um, away from from doing so. And equally, on the other side, there's a kind of weird fatigue about speaking about it a little bit, to be mm. honest, because obviously it, it, you know, is such a big thing in your life. And anytime you meet pretty much anyone, whether that's in the street or old friends or family or whoever it may be, you you obviously get asked about how everything's going. So you do feel very much like a, a stuck record. But uh, on that day, I was very relaxed. The the last kind of moments that I can remember um, of the first part of that descent, it was one of the first corners and, and the last part of the climb, was just feeling so relaxed and at ease and excited for the rest of the race, to be honest, and um, and just enjoying the day. It, it was, uh, we'd gone past um, a hotel that I had stayed in, literally past. I, I saw it from the bike uh, for Lunigiana, which uh, was a race that I mm. won as a junior. Uh, we'd also gone past a uh, jubilant, waving, very excited hotel owner called Dante, who I've got to know a little bit, who has an <laughs> amazing hotel in um, just uh, above La Spezia. But his, it's the beautiful hotel that he has there. And he was on the side of the road, so I enjoyed seeing him waving, and as you do. And, uh, yeah, it was kind of a long transition stage. And um, I remember just being very relaxed and, uh, yeah, just enjoying the race, to be honest. I'm really excited for what was to come. My whole season had been built around the next week. And I really had that feeling that the race hadn't even really started yet so that was kind of the the feeling I still had in that moment I think stage 11 or 12 whatever it was yeah I mean on the rest day we'd even talked well Lionel had asked you about maybe even detraining slightly in those first 10 days such was well your feeling that you still had a lot to give and I think one of your frustrations that came through in the that interview you did with the times about what happened was that there was a lot there, a lot that you hadn't shown yet, although you were in a great position on general classification and you, you felt kind of poised to, to, to show that. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. I think I was just really excited for the race, how it was going, how I was feeling. And obviously we hadn't really done anything until that point. Um, there hadn't been any big stages. There'd been, you know, some kind of little skirmishes here and there but I was very much of the inclination to to just be holding back and waiting and, and knowing that it was all going to be decided in those last two days that's something we'd we'd been discussing since December when when we'd first kind of set eyes on the race and um, just kind of holding back and staying out of the big battles that the media were trying to portray and and all the rest of it was was key really and it was weird those kind of few days because there was like a at first a sense of disappointment that I wasn't in pink um, again mm. um, I'd obviously lost I think 19 or something seconds on the sprint stage behind a very unnecessary crash a uh, big crash in the peloton um, and so that meant I was five seconds behind G uh, after that rest day um, but at the same time I kind of know 
the you know the fatigue and everything that comes with being in in a jersey every day and being five seconds behind was perfect and yeah I was just really enjoying the race we had a great group of guys there um we had a great feeling on the race with the staff and, and everyone and, and it was something exciting happening and, and um yeah I was I was enjoying that stage uh, Liguria is a, a nice place I like Liguria obviously at that stage no one was under any illusion that well I mean it was very clear that you were a co-leader and that you were very much in the shake-up to to compete for the race compete for the win um I suppose if if you'd have told some people that at the start of the season they would have been surprised because you'd had a tough 20 well you'd had tough moments in 2022 and 2021 was it a case of you know you had such a good start to this year 2023 you'd sort of played yourself into um that kind of co-leadership status were you almost well surprised and relieved to have almost regained that status at Ineos um having maybe maybe again largely due to bad luck slipped down the pecking order a little bit no I don't think so I don't think that's something I ever really stopped to consider I think I was just um really enjoying the season, uh, feeling great momentum, feeling kind of like I was going pretty much race to race, improving. Uh, it's easy to look back on things with a kind of gloss, really. But even in that period, there was, you know, moments of of a bit of, of difficulty. Um, the last corner of Valenciana that I got close to, to winning the GC and ended up on the podium, uh, a rider from Bora, hit me from behind mid corner like 100 meters to go in the race so it was completely innocuous mm. um and I didn't touch the ground but he kind of went into my ribs and I actually really struggled with that for the next two and a bit weeks I raced router uh not really being able to breathe properly really and 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 really not feeling great and then managed to recover in time for Torino where I was back on the podium so you know as we've always discussed Daniel I think as long as I've near enough known you that this is kind of the the peaks and troughs of cycling and and mm. yes people don't always see those troughs that that you know more and more go on behind the scenes and and there's probably less shown than ever in terms of the strife that that um people can endure in, in life in general I would say but um mm sports people but uh yeah it was it was a great season and I, I don't i don't think there was that sense it was more just grasping every opportunity and making the most of them oh, no, 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 no. a lot of ineos riders down there no and pink this jersey, is a bit of a shocker for the rest of them primoz roglic has been involved he's just taken the bike from kuhn bowman and on the right hand side there down and not good it's gegenhardt it's Tailgagen Hart who is down, and Tailgagen Hart who's in trouble yeah, here. And Kuhn I think Bowman is checking on, on his health. And gentlemen, oh. this was a quiet day. We were laughing and joking. The riders, I'm sure, in a little bit of the same. But this does not look good for Tailgagen Hart. So, Tail, we'll, we'll talk now about the crash. And, well, just tell us as much or as little as you want to tell us from the moment of the crash and what you remember. And, um, well... It's, it's a long journey from then until now and um, we can go into a lot of detail about your rehab later but just starting with the crash and uh, well the the moments and the hours and the days that followed that 
Yeah, I mean, in the moment, obviously, uh, those three, I think it was three riders in front of me, uh, slid out uh, mid-corner. It was um, a little bit wet, I think, by, by the look of the footage. Happened to be that those three riders, two of them was Geraint and, and Roglic, who obviously sat um, the two places in front of me on GC, um, all of us within, within a handful of seconds. And it all happened very quickly to the extent that I don't normally with, with most crashes, you kind of remember uh, you're cognizant of, of it happening. Um, I don't have any recollection of going down or of the crash unfolding, I think just because it happened so quickly. But I do very, very uh, clearly remember the moment that I hit the floor um, and yeah, immediately knew what had happened, felt the the full extent of what had happened. And to be perfectly honest, there was a massive uh, slice of good fortune in that sense, because I think that really made everything thereafter a lot easier from the fact that I knew very immediately what had happened. Um, there was no ambiguity. There was a few seconds thereafter where I lay there and you kind of have still got all this noise of right we were right at the front of the bunch so you've got you know 160 odd riders passing and, and all the rest of it that were very silent weirdly and that I kind of started thinking yeah I need to get up I need to get back on the bike and of course you you feel absolutely nothing in that moment and that was the only ambiguity in this entire last seven months to be honest the only moment where there was kind of a question as to a choice, yeah. Well, what you would, thought, yeah, or yeah, and yeah. Then I kind of just told myself, well, you just felt what happened happen, and uh, you know you can't stand up, and and that was it. Then I took my helmet off and and kind of just accepted my fate, and I think that made it a lot easier. To be honest, there was no waiting, you know, to get scans or to have a doctor's opinion. I was very clear on on the extent of it, and. Um, it's not something that I ever, ever expected to happen, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I think I was at peace with it very quickly. Mm. And I suppose if there is anger and well, there the would ordinarily be some anger and frustration, I guess that comes later in the sense that in the there and now, you you sort of all your senses are just trying to cope with and process what's in front of them. Um, yeah, in that moment, there was nothing really. I was looking up at the sky, uh, very, very still, kind of in a half ball, as you, as it were, um, curled up and just waiting. Um, Kuhn Bauman kind of came into my field of vision above me and asked if he could do anything. Uh, have, he was stranded having given his bike to, to Primos and I kind of just said to him, thanks, mate, but, you know. It's fine, mm. don't worry. Um, I, I told her, I think I told him I'd broken my leg. Uh, <laughs> and then, yeah, it, it's all just one thing onto the next, really. And again, that was very lucky. It was uh, a bit over a one-hour journey, which was uh, tough. It was very, very painful every time that this uh, uh, very badly suspensioned ambulance would would hit a pothole of which there is 
quite a lot in uh, in Italy for anyone that's ridden a bike there mm. before. My leg would obviously bounce around and, and all the bones and stuff would would kind of, yeah, do things that you don't want to do. So that hour drive down to, to Genoa was tough. Uh, luckily, I spent most of it on the phone with with uh, my partner, with my parents, spoke to spoke to them and kind of told them everything was fine and, and how I was doing, um, which was a good distraction. And then once I was at the hospital, it was obviously pretty quickly getting whisked around into x-rays and, and MRIs and different scans. And actually within about three hours or so of arriving uh, there in, in Genoa, then I was into emergency surgery. So um, in that sense, there wasn't really any time to be feeling any of those emotions. It was one thing to the next and mm. and uh, trying to kind of make the best decisions in that moment with uh, Stefano, our team doctor, and, and yeah, just looking at, at how I was going to get healthy, basically, and even in that moment, you know. Did anyone give you any kind of prognosis at that moment? This is the nature of the injury and you will get back to what you were or was did, did you seek that? In the hospital immediately. Yeah. Or so, yeah. I mean, once they'd established what the actual... Because you, you're, you left femur fractured into six pieces, am I right? Um, yeah. Towards yeah. the top. Yeah. Yeah. And, and did they know roughly what the implications of that were, were likely to be for a cyclist? Um, no, because you need to go into the surgery and, and see the result of that. Most importantly, uh, there was a plan A and a plan B, um, because of the nature of it, if they would have to basically put a load of plates in, or if they would be able to do it more internally, which is the preferred option. Uh, so yeah, I came out the surgery. They just, they said everything had gone really well, um, as they'd as as good or better than they could have hoped for, they managed to do the plan A. Uh, there was quite a bit of ambiguity prior to the surgery if that was going to be possible or not. Um, yeah, from the scan I had, the second scan, then they cleared any worries about the artery, which was obviously a big thing. But equally, there was a, a, a massive amount of internal bleeding just from from the localized damage of the brake. So that was. Hence why I was kind of very quickly rushed into uh, into surgery and they called the, the amazing surgeons in from, from home, 10pm um, or whatever it was. And yeah, those kind of discussions, it, it, it was, it, to be honest, I was in a lot of pain, Daniel. Every time I had to move bed, which was quite a few times, or move surface to get into the x-ray, to get into the next scan, to get off of the ambulance um table then it's impossible to lift the to lift everything simultaneously and that was excruciatingly painful so that was kind of just getting through those moments really and knowing that once the surgery was done that everything would be much better which which it was and tell you, if i asked your family and friends how you dealt with it and what how you dealt with these kind of situations generally i mean i know you you probably never experienced anything quite this dramatic but um what would they say um i would i would guess you're quite you're quite stoic aren't you um i think i found that's that my impression people really want you to have some great epiphany from something like this or to to 
you know, to really give them some insight into something they've never experienced. And if I'm perfectly honest, this was just exactly like my my normal training. It's, you know, having a problem, having a, a solution, having a goal, knowing that this is going to take months and months of, of work to arrive to it, that the incremental change is going to be so small that you will never see it day to day. And knowing that you just have to persevere and, and that there's going to be ups and downs along the way and that you, you have to have a very clear process and and mindset and and fill your days as, as happily and as kind of enjoyably as you can alongside everything that you're doing and, and crack on. And, and mm. I don't know if perhaps that sounds surprising for people, but that's really how it's felt. And there's been so many parallels between this journey and... And, you know, the kind of regular routine that you uh, live as, as an in- endurance athlete. And, and that's really all I can say. I've, you're, I've... you're a sculptor working with a piece of marble that's the, the human body anyway, I suppose. It's just a different piece of marble. Yeah, and, and you're working with sandpaper. You're not working with a, a pneumatic drill. You're mm. you're making tiny changes day to day and, and you know, no one from the outside can see them and, and you're working away and and you're hoping that you're gonna create this this um you know thing at the end mm. of it. But that, that's also an unknown. So the operation goes well and you're in the hospital for almost two weeks. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. During which time, obviously, uh, Geraint Thomas agonisingly loses the pink jersey or Primoz Roglic wins the, or takes the pink jersey off him on the penultimate day of the Giro. Um, just tell me how you experienced that day. Yeah, I think I'd just left hospital that day, uh, if I remember correctly. I'd been watching the whole race, which was something that I wouldn't have expected to do if you'd told me that probably before. I crashed, if you'd explain the circumstance. I think just because of the real bond that we'd created as a group in that um, six months leading up to that race and, and you know, even just still being in the WhatsApp group with that, that was just us riders away from anything professionally, mostly just rubbish being spoken in there. But I think wanting all the best for, for those guys. And, yeah, in the end, I was also... You sat in hospital, it was nice to watch the last 30, 40 Ks um, on GCN every day and have um, have those guys to cheer for. So Now, will they have told Geraint Thomas about that or will they simply keep it to what's happening? Will they simply keep it to the seconds and timings? No, I think they will uh, try and get it from that, you know. He has a mechanical problem, Roglic out in front of you. That would motivate you a bit. Yeah, it was hard to watch that TT. Um, I experienced it as as most people did, really. Um, no different. Um, the kind of ups and downs of all those different ways that it swung within that 20 minutes or so. And um, yeah, that was tough. Knowing G as I do, then that made it even harder. And, and, and you know, having to watch him do that last 500 metres or whatever it was, kind of knowing that it wasn't going to go the way that we wanted was, um, yeah, it was, was difficult to see. And we are hearing that there might be a big enough difference even with that mechanical for something dramatic to happen. Keep your eyes on this. Geraint Thomas apparently was 29 seconds down there at the last intermediate. 
Also, I suppose knowing that <laughs> as his teammate, um, however it had gone for you personally in those last 10 days, there probably would have been a moment where you know you could have you could have helped him to eke out another 10 or 15 or 20 seconds and um, which might have been the difference if it wasn't you yourself winning the giro but i suppose you know that's very very hypothetical yeah it's just not really something that since not really thought too much about that kind of hypothetical scenarios because i think it's just yeah uh, you know there's so many different ways that you could look at that race i mean remco going home or Primoz clearly also struggling from from the aftermath of that crash or there's a million and one different things going on in a bike race so to add just one element in and and think that that exists in a vacuum is is uh, a bit silly really and let's get the check it's 40 seconds down Gerard Thomas loses the Giro d'Italia from the Planche de Belfi all the way back in 2020. It is finally redemption for Roglic. Teo, we talked or you touched on how uh, until, well, at this point in the process, the first two weeks, there were really no well, there were no choices, there were no real decisions to make. But you did have a decision about how you were going to go about your rehab, I think. And you decided that you were going to go to the Netherlands and a particular rehab facility. Just talk to me a little bit about how that came about, because, uh, you know, it's something that does happen in other sports as well. In football, sometimes when people have long term injuries, they get permission from their teams to to work remotely with external specialists on their rehab for various reasons. And again, this, I think, well, this came about partly because of a conversation with your partner's Arsenal teammate, Viv Miedema, who's a, well, she's a legend of um, Arsenal women's football. And she recommended a facility in Amsterdam. But talk to us a a little bit about why you decided to go with that option. Yeah, I mean, I think... Within 48 hours of of the surgery, I was already thinking about the next steps, already looking at how I was going to first and foremost get out of, of hospital and what that was going to entail and, and how that would work, the logistics and, and everything. And and then, yeah, looking past that of how I was going to, you know, get my career back and get back to 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 my best really and and obviously that starts with with the most basic of things um and and very much was was kind of those decisions um it kind of started with me envisaging my day-to-day life and how that was going to work um different levels of independence different levels of mobility and and more importantly more kind of to things that I knew for sure, which was what I wanted. And and I think I was really keen to be somewhere very different than I would normally be in cycling. Uh, For me, that means like a vibrant, multicultural, interesting city with a lot going on, with a lot of different people, with, um, yeah, things that I could really enjoy aside from the the physio, which, yeah, was going to be, the next six months or five months of my life, but equally was going to be four to five hours a day, which, you know, still leaves a whole lot of, of living. I looked at some different options and, 
Yeah, with the with my uh, partner's background from uh, partly from the Netherlands, that was a big draw. Her family are still based around Amsterdam. Um, I knew that I really wanted to achieve some other things besides getting back to being healthy. So uh, the draw of of learning Dutch was was a big one for me. Um, and then it was the case of, of finding somewhere that kind of fit the bill. And one of my favorite things about cycling, but something that is also very problematic in a situation like this is that cycling is so kind of transient, if you will, and we're afforded the ability to live anywhere, to train anywhere, to live very independent lives, uh, where we obviously have a training program every day, but we decide, mm. you know, where we train on that given day, which mm. climb we're going to do an effort on, what time of day we start training, all manner of things, really. I, I think that that's very little understood by the general population and even by a lot of cycling fans, how kind of independent uh, cyclists are. Each cyclist is like their own small little their enterprise business, in a way. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Um, so we don't have, you know, a centralised base. There isn't a facility to go and and be treated at every day and and so i was very clear that that was what i wanted um if i look at other sports with a much bigger rehab culture then that's you know the fundamental of that cycling doesn't have that and from my experience in the sport which is 15 years or so bike riders will pretty much ride their bike no matter what and they will jump on their bike as soon as is humanly possible. And I really didn't believe that was the right thing to do, basically. And I wanted to be as far removed from that possibility as possible to remove that temptation. And I think, therefore, just try to create the environment for that where there was a lot of other stuff going on, where I was working with people that weren't really from a cycling background um, and mm. with looking at me more as a as an ath- a general athlete, let's say, uh, with different priorities away from from endurance sport, and uh, yeah, I had a really amazing time in in the Netherlands. I really enjoyed spending time there. It was a great place to have friends and family visit. It was a great place to meet a lot of new friends, which um, was was amazing. And uh, yeah, it was a really good decision looking back. How did you go about learning Dutch? Did you do it formally or was this yeah. with an app or? Yeah, formally. You did, You had classes. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and how, how was your progress? How was your progress? Uh, yeah, I can spray can beat in Netherlands. <laughs> so, yeah, so, your, accent's, your accent's pretty good. Yeah. Um, excellent, excellent. And um, well, this was obviously, uh, as you just described, this was obviously a very conscious decision to give yourself different kind of stimuli but I, i'm just wondering was was there any sort of uh, you know theoretical kind of um, background knowledge behind that because there are you know there are schools of thought that cross training is really valuable for lots of different reasons and you could also you can extend that to to the mental approach to sport and anything else as well that as i said giving yourself lots of varied st- stimuli is always good um even if you you're ultimately in the business of one particular output one particular type of performance um 
was it was it about that or was it just a feeling just a sense and 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 again more about well staving off kind of boredom and any kind of malaise um i think it was about getting to this point now in the middle of november and not looking back on the last let's say five months of my life being just about bending my leg and then Mm. having strength in my leg and then having equal muscle mass and then having equal power it was about me being able to look back on that period and say i did everything i could have um in the rehab and let's like be totally honest there was plenty of days where the rehab was that in- and this did take me by surprise um where the rehab was that intense and painful and and difficult that i slept for two to three hours in the afternoon and that's you know mm. I, i've trained six seven hours on the bike multiple days in a row and raced you know grand tours and never thought about sleeping in the afternoon is something totally foreign to me as an athlete but um it was really intense but i wanted to be able to look back on you know my summer essentially and say that was really fulfilling and interesting and different i think different is the key word um mm. to have the opportunity to have that uh vibrancy and and variety of life um was very fulfilling and really gave a lot of fuel to my daily training as well i was going to say Terry, because you said people when they hear you talk about this that what you've been through they expect you to talk about some big epiphany which isn't necessarily well there hasn't necessarily been a huge epiphany mentally but are the things from the rehab maybe physical things um that you will take forward and that you will implement and apply over the coming years do you think i think it's too early to say from that to be honest um i mean certainly like working five to six days a week in the gym with supervision um you know spending six seven eight hours a week on a physio table um spending time around all the different athletes that I did was was incredibly rewarding and interesting and such a different existence to my regular routine, even just, you know, receiving every Sunday night a schedule for the next seven days of what time I needed to be at the clinic and, and what time I was going to do each different thing that day and what time I'd be finished is is foreign you know that's not something that I'm used mm. to um I think it's too early to say kind of really from like the physical side how you know how everything went even I know the outcome of the the testing we've done I wouldn't be back training if that hadn't the testing that we'd done hadn't been um given me the green light to do so but um how that translates is is remains to be mm. seen and and that's maybe something that I did kind of come away from the whole experience with is that actually a lot of sports have very clear return to play procedure and a lot of research. And to be perfectly honest, cycling has none. It doesn't exist. Mm. And uh, that was a bit of a shock for me when I, when this happened. There hasn't been that many surprises, but there is very, very little research out there on it's easier for me to say, for example, like 
post-ACL injury, a football player mm. knows that the hamstring strength needs to be within a certain percentage of the quad strength. Otherwise, the recurrence of a knee injury is, is very, very likely and they won't be allowed back into full training, back onto the pitch. That type of uh, knowledge doesn't exist in cycling, um, which is, you know, interesting. The bike is a rehab tool. So every mm. athlete uh, that was at the physio was riding in a static bike every day and laughing at me because I refused to get on it because I just didn't believe that was the the right approach. It's so easy to ride a bike, you know. Mm. All of our grandparents can sit and ride a bike, even if they struggle to, to walk up and down the stairs. Um, but I think, yeah, that was a bit of a surprise to me, to be honest, like, just seeing how little clinical studies and and data there is available for um, for kind of that return to play or return to bike, whatever you want to call it. I think just talking to people in your team, for example, this year about Egan Bernal's journey back towards full fitness, that's become clear as well. There have been a lot of surprises, I think, or, or unknowns um, with that. And I think that probably applies to a lot of riders. Um, you know, I, I know that uh, as far as the coaches in your team are concerned, you know, Egan's heart and lungs, obviously they they are back to what they were, but the, the, the injuries and the legacy of the injuries um, have sort of, well, been a lot, it's been a lot more difficult to predict the, the course that they have taken. And I suppose that speaks to what you, you're talking about, um, lack of knowledge, lack of research. Yeah, but that's like an indiv- I'm not talking. Mm, I'm talking more like in 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 a in a uh, let's say pro cycling as an industry mm. is you know uh, getting into the hundreds and hundreds of millions, perhaps billions, if you add together kind of the whole industry as a whole. There isn't uh, a route map kind of to identify the the way back from injury as a whole, rather than kind of the semantics of individual cases that, you know, I can't speak mm. to. I, I mean, kind of really as a kind of the protocols of when you do certain things with a lower limb injury. Right. I know, you know, with a collarbone, it's totally different. You jump back on the bike and you can have a bit of yeah. restriction two months later. It doesn't really matter. Um, I think if you look at other sports that have a much bigger rehab culture, then there is a lot more kind of, knowledge and data around that mm. which is perhaps more what i'm that i don't know you just kind of assume that those things exist and then when you are in that situation of looking for that whether it be scientific literature or whatever it may be you know studies on different testing protocols um mm. off bike testing um it's quite surprising how little there is and Taylor, what was it like inhabiting an, a sort of aerobically unfit body for, I suppose, the first time for many years? I mean, I know every year you have an off-season where you, you're not doing a whole lot for three or four weeks, but in this case, you're not doing anything really aerobically for quite a long time. Uh, again, not something I ever really considered after about a month of being in Amsterdam, maybe three weeks, I was riding a city bike to and from physio every day, um, which was kind of touching on what we just spoke about. One of my priorities really was that I could 
be very local to where I was going every day. I didn't want to have a massive great commute, for example. I wanted to be, I was uh, staying in the Gracht, so 15 minute cycle from from the physio. Um, and prior to that, a little bit closer when I when I had to drive because I couldn't walk or, or cycle or anything. Um, so in all honesty, my focus that could have been on that, as you say, was more on such basic things like literally bending my leg. Uh, that took uh, many months of, of work to get uh, normal range of motion in my knee or being able to lift my leg off the bed without using my arms to, to lift it. It, it, it. It's such basic mm-hmm. things that you're focused on that you're never once... I never once thought really about that side of it and also kind of had the confidence that that would come now in the period when I'm healthy and strong and balanced between my legs, most importantly, and um, able to fully focus on what is, like you say, the bread and butter of cycling, your your aerobic fitness. Um, that was always kind of the last layer of all of this, really, as opposed to, to worrying about it in that moment. While all of this was going on, Teo, um, you changed teams or you were about to change teams. Uh, I mean, I don't want to suggest that under, uh, negotiations were underway before the 1st of August. <laughs> but um, I, I think I first got wind of you possibly going to a little trek at the Giro before the crash. I can't remember. This might have just been some good guesswork on my part, um, thinking about who your managers are and thinking about the relationships that they had and you know, just thinking about it maybe making sense that Trek was a little Trek was a team that would have made sense for you. Um, but talk to us a little bit about that decision, if you can, um, why you made it and maybe the sort of timeline on that process um, over, over how many sort of months were you thinking about maybe thinking about a change of team um yeah I mean the first thing to say in in that regard is how well supported I've been by Ineos Grenadiers um as you just kind of alluded to there it's quite a uh surprising not surprising but unusual situation is probably the best word to to use in terms of changing team um during a process like this um, I think the whole experience could have been very different if it wasn't for yeah the way in which the management of of Ineos have supported me and and the staff and um, yeah the extent to which they've gone to 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 make sure that the best decisions and actions are made for the rest of my career, which um, is above and beyond really, and I think is quite unusual and, and deserves to to be really highlighted and and for them to be given a lot of credit for and for me to be incredibly grateful for. Um, And then coming back to your question, um, I think it's one of those things where in your late 20s, having been on on one World Tour team and two two professional teams ever uh, after my three years with with Axel, um, there's a moment where you you probably have a kind of if not now then when type of question if that makes sense um I think there was very much the feeling from my side and from my management side that if we didn't decide to try something new now 
then there would never really be a reason to do so. Um, and I think the prospect of trying something new was was quite interesting and um, not something that we were by any means set on. But um, yeah, kind of as those conversations grow, you start to understand the landscape more and, and what's out there. And um, yeah, that's led to here, which um, is, you know, exciting for, for what's to come, even if there's still kind of always this balance at the moment between really just being so focused on the here and now um, mm. as opposed to the future. And it's only really in the last, I would say, two or three weeks where I've started to be really looking forward and and looking at the future. It's been very internally focused the last six months in terms of kind of just on how I'm doing and, and how everything is going and, and on the goal of being healthy. And I think that mm. was so, you know, uh, prevalent in my day-to-day -day that it was very tricky to look past that kind of current situation. Of You know, I was away from cycling really, so um, I wasn't really looking too much into the next year because I was focused on on the here and now. What were, Teo, I don't expect you to tell us about the financial details of the, the breakdown of the contract, but what were the other provisos in terms of a, a team that you were looking for? What did the, the new team have to be able to offer you? Um, it was just looking at the propositions that were on the table and, and each probably has always, uh, you know, advantages and disadvantages. One of the big advantages of, Little Trek was was knowing quite a lot of riders there. Um, having raced against Mads, for example, since I was 15 years old, um, having known Tom's for, for a very long time, we were both racing in the States uh, against each other in 2014. And equally, having a history with, um, you know, some of the equipment suppliers and, and yeah. Trek bikes that I rode in 2014 as well with, with Axel. So I think, I don't know if I was so much looking for specific things in that sense that you've, you've said there. I think it was more just looking for the overall project and the overall feeling. And, and, and obviously the team has kind of undergone um, some changes in terms of, of headline sponsors and, and, um approach of the team in the last months and um yeah i'm really excited to be a part of that kind of new chapter of a team that has a yeah. an immense amount of history in the sport and yeah really excited to be not only racing alongside those guys that i've just mentioned but also supporting the women's team and um mm. having having them as teammates as well is is really something i'm looking forward to and Teo, I suppose, I, I guess you haven't spoken in detail about your race program with them yet, but will there be, I mean, given the where you're at in terms of your recovery, will there be any caveats in terms of, will, will any caveats have to be incorporated in terms of your uh, race program? Is it still going to be the race program of a rider who's, who's recovering and around whom on everyone's part there has to be a bit of caution and there has to be a bit of uncertainty about it. or are you the same as every other rider in the roster just st starting a new season as you've started every other new pro season 
Yeah, I mean, I can only I can only speak from my perspective on that. Um, mm. I think first and foremost, changing team anyway is you know something where it's never going to be as simple as 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 staying in the same team. You've got, of course, all changes of equipment, but also changes of of personnel kind of around you. As we were just talking about, riders are definitely their own small little kind of micro enterprise within the greater structures that they exist. And um, you're, you're changing every supplier, you're changing every um, part of, of that enterprise really. And, and that very much affects your day to day. That being said, I wouldn't be back on the bike now uh, coming into my second week of kind of full return to normal training over 20 hours um, on the bike this week if I didn't have confidence of where my body was at if I hadn't done the mm. testing uh, that we um, deemed necessary um, and that we'd kind of planned to do since since early June uh, whether that be the biomechanical testing the force production testing all of this kind of stuff that has been integrated in in the last months if I was having problems with my body now, I also wouldn't be retraining. And and if I wasn't kind of leading, a, there's been a lot of enjoyment in the last weeks, to be honest, of just getting back to normal routine and feeling like really mm. back to normal. Not, you know, I've, been, I've seen a physio uh, twice in the past three weeks and I've, there's, it, that's been kind of just for checkups and seeing how everything's going as opposed to going for a specific reason that for me is like really going back to my normal existence Mm -hmm. as an athlete. And, you know, that's not to say there might not be some hiccups along the way, but everything that I'm seeing at the moment gives me confidence to, to plan and to dream of to an extent having like a normal year and and making normal progress. Mm -hmm. You know, there's going to be adaptations from a physiological side that take longer from being off the bike for so long, as you said, from not, doing mm. aerobic training endurance training for so long um but you can't really predict that side of things you've just got to manage it as and when it comes about and and keep monitoring i think i think that's really important mm. i've got you know a few little bits and pieces here and there in place to really monitor everything and to to keep an eye on on how things are developing as the volume and, and the intensity and everything goes up. And yeah, we've just got to adapt to to each and every day as it comes, I guess. And you're sure no epiphanies that you can tell us about over the last, this is, this is hugely uh, disappointing for me. I mean, um, because I definitely... it is true, isn't it? It's like gone. Well, like you said earlier on, I think you said that, um, people i mean these these stories they're a bit like recovery memoirs um these rehab stories people find them quite appealing they're drawn to them and i think it is because as you say they expect some great epiphany from someone who's seen the some kind of dark side who's been to somewhere Mm. where the rest of us mortals have not been and maybe (laughs) in the boredom amid amid the boredom of going to a gym and spending six days sorry six hours a day at a gym for several months on end that some great lightning bolt will have struck you yeah but you're telling me that that's not the case no no lightning uh i mean i think you know it's just a case of appreciating things and it can be something as mundane as being able to bend your knee i was you know at 
20 degrees of, of flexion uh, mm. in the month post-op. And that is incredibly tricky for day-to-day life. You can't even get in a car. Um, mm. Going down the street in a wheelchair and realising how incredibly tough that is and how poor infrastructure is for, for wheelchairs, mm. how bad the pavements are for wheelchairs. Um, how long did that last? Uh, that was... A f- I mean, it's always in stages, isn't it? It, it, it was... The trouble was uh, with the crutches that I couldn't use my hip flexor at all. It was completely um, out of action post-surgery in terms of... Uh, I, don't, I don't know how to scientifically describe that, but very, very weak and inactive. And uh, you need, you know, kind of stabilisation around the hip to even just hang the leg Um in the air so i think i was in the wheelchair for a couple weeks probably um the key for me with with all of this was being around people every day that could adapt to what they were seeing and that was really key for me um doing you know every session with supervision seeing the physios every day to to kind of be able to adapt to how the body was reacting because there is no prediction on on how things are going to trend and and in what direction you're going to go within those mm. kind of cycles of each week and and each month that that progress mm. so um yeah it was definitely a very different experience but no no great epiphanies daniel unfortunately must apologize <laughs> I wondered about your relationship with time. I saw this quote, the quote from you in the Times piece about you said, oh, I'm 27 or 28 now and I haven't got 10 more years of doing this. And it made me think one of the more memorable quotes I've read in an interview from this year was um, Thibaut Pino talking about how how badly he'd taken turning 30 a few years ago. And um, <laughs> this really struck a chord with me because I'm badly afflicted by chronophobia. Do you know what chronophobia <laughs> is, Taylor? Um, yeah. I have a real fear of passing time, yeah. um, but okay. nothing on nothing on that front either. Um, I mean, it's ten years since we first met. In a you you were there taking eighteen year old cyclists to pubs yeah. in uh, central London, <laughs> <laughs> leaving them astray. Um, no, I uh, think I think uh, I think that definitely for me the thing that that really makes me think of is how weird it was being inside all day. There was certainly more than a handful of moments where I kind of thought, wow, I'm going to spend this entire summer inside. And for someone that my grandfather is a was a farmer and I always try to say to him that our lives are actually very similar. You know, you spend all day outside, <laughs> dictated by the weather, kind of seeing things come and go, me, you know, coming to the things, him watching them pass by and... And uh, whenever I'm out training and I see people kind of working in the road, let's say, or on the side of the road, I always think there's some kind of shared kinship, even if they probably don't feel it as such. But it was really a, a big change to be inside all day. And, and yeah, I was certainly very, very grateful when my mobility got good enough that I could, you know, go swimming outside um, pretty soon after I arrived in Amsterdam and making the most of, of the green spaces, making the most of the incredible cycling infrastructure there to to inhabit the city in a more human way, whether that be on foot crutches or indeed eventually a, a bicycle. And 
and and yeah just kind of get back to normality in any little way that you can is is something that you don't take for granted in those situations so mm. no time well, I'll tell you, you've been incredibly you've been incredibly generous for your time i will release you back into the wilds of catalonia in just a second but i thought we'd finish with just a couple just a few quick fire questions um to finish on a light-hearted note um i'll start with a non-cycling one i'm gonna ask you a few cycling ones in a minute but i'm telling non-cycling athlete of 2023 i ask you this knowing that you have a broad range of friends acquaintances in lots of different disciplines um some sports some weird and wonderful sports that i follow um have we got any anyone you'd like to nominate non-cycling non-cycling athlete of 2023 something that's really caught your eye in 2023 should really have given you some time to prepare for this and yeah. think about it, but. unfair daniel um i think seeing the way in which Jenny Hermoso reacted to everything that happened at the Women's World Cup was incredibly inspiring because female athletes don't set out to, well, I think on the whole, to do anything other than to be incredibly passionate and incredible at their sport. And yet they're burdened with all of this other stuff going on around the scenes that they have to take in their stride and I think the way in which she did that in the highlight moment of her career and in the way in which it became such a sideshow to what should have just been an incredible celebration of of her brilliance and her team's brilliance is really inspiring for how people can take on probably more than they set out to do so and and uh, intended to do so in that moment jenny hermoso who she was the victim of an impromptu kiss from luis rubiales the president of the spanish federation um after the world Cup yeah after, yeah after a year of of kind of story Lots that of led up to that point yeah teo um film or documentary you've seen in 2023 you'd like to recommend you recommended earlier today in fact you recommended a podcast series and i took you up on your recommendation immediately um (laughs) i forget the name of the actual podcast series the the rest is history but it was about the aztecs and i'm very much enjoying it Um, and film or documentary series go on a friend just messaged me saying that uh, a member of her family works um to do with the series and that I'm the only person of our generation that she'd ever heard who was remotely interested in it. So I'm glad that uh, I'm I'm not alone. Actually, Owen Dahl just texted me about two minutes before we started recording that he loves that series as well. So there you wow, go. Wow, wow. That's the power of um, social media. A podcast or documentary. I was recently in Chicago and it's not a podcast or documentary, but The Bear is incredible television. Um, I'm quite fascinated with kitchens and all things culinary. And uh, I thought the way in which that was shot, the intensity of it almost could be. It's about um, a restaurant, isn't it? And it's on a streaming service that I don't subscribe to. Which streaming service is it on? Uh, I had to subscribe just to watch it and now I'm unsubscribed but mate, apparently there's a season two so I guess I'm going to have to get back in the game I'm sure people can find it they, we don't need to give dues okay, to you're the, massive you're multinationals I've, I've, on this 
brilliant podcast <laughs> i've had that recommendation heard that recommendation from several people so now i will definitely have to look that up um just a couple of quick ones Teo. one thing or if you like person in particular that you're going to miss at ineos i know you, you you'll miss a lot of people there but um one thing in particular you'll miss uh i think since we've been speaking about kind of that way in which an athlete or a cyclist, sorry, uh, exists as their own little enterprise. Definitely uh, Dio Sanders, who was, was my coach for the the past, uh, well, the six months of this season, but also has helped me uh, a huge amount in, you know, very different ways than we would have anticipated working together in, in the past six months. And alongside him, Ator, um, whose surname I won't, Basque, Basque surname, I won't try and uh, get myself in hot water for pronouncing, who's my nutritionist of the last few years, who I've absolutely loved working with and who is one of the preeminent, brilliant young minds within uh, not only cycling, but, but physiology um, and sports science as a whole. Excellent. And finally, Teo, ride or rider of 2023? I'm sure you watched, as well as the end of the Giro d'Italia, I'm sure you watched some cycling um, in the second part of the year. I think I'll have to go for Lotte Kopecky. Um I think that the way in which she won the world in Glasgow was, was incredible. Um, but also watching the um, women's Tour de France. Um, I think just seeing her performances throughout that um, were really, yeah, of of another level. Um, and probably alongside that, Mathieu van der Poel, because I think he's not getting half the credit he deserves for the season he's had in terms of just ticking off monuments left, right and centre and also the World Championships in our beloved... Uh, wet Glaswegian streets. I, I was going to arbitrarily award you comeback of the year. Um, we did that last year, comeback of the year, and we gave it to Geraint Thomas and um, people were, well, some people were aggrieved at this because it was a sort of, Geraint Thomas, it's not a comeback, he's never been away, um, to quote mm. LL, cool J. Um, <laughs> so consider that yours anyway, that very unofficial title already of the year, which won't which won't you, otherwise be awarded i don't think anyone else is going to make a comeback between november the 16th and and, <laughs> and december I, but i'm not sure if you're awarding it to me for next year or this year I'll no have it for no both. okay you can okay free um, we'll make a date for yeah. all right for 16th of november 2024 after which well at which time um terry gangenhart will have <laughs> What will you have won this time next year? What will you have done? Let's see. The minds of the cycling podcast listeners. There we go. There we go. And there'll be epiphanies aplenty. Um, Teo, again, thank you very much for your extremely, well, your your generosity with us today as you've been generous with us in the past. And, well, we're very glad and relieved to see you back on your feet, back on your bike. And we're very much looking forward to seeing what you're going to do with Little Trek next year. And we'll be speaking to Always you. Always a pleasure, sure. Daniel. Thank you. We've Thank got you, a five euro supermarket disposable barbecue we're going to go set fire to. <laughs> Cheers, Merry man. Christmas, Teo. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's a bit early for that. All the best. <laughs> Ciao. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, 
Daniel Freeb and Lionel Burney. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. 